Pre-hospital emergency anaesthesia, or FEAR for short, is the term used to describe a rapid sequence induction or anaesthetic in the pre-hospital emergency environment. This procedure is high risk, delivered to some of the most sick and unstable patients, and has a significant time pressure. Therefore, it's important that the team performing it are familiar with the procedure. Of course, the FEAR team doesn't just stop at the critical care providers who carry the drugs. Every paramedic, technician and care assistant on the job is integral to the smooth running and quick delivery of the FEAR. That's why this month we're taking a look at this rarely encountered procedure to help you the next time that you encounter it. We're going to look at why it's done and touch on some of the drugs that are used, but most importantly, we're going to discuss the practical steps that are involved and how you can prepare your patient and your scene for the delivery of this anaesthetic. So sit back and relax. There really isn't anything to fear. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh. My name is Simon. And I'm Alex. And this week we are looking at a really interesting topic. Well, I think so anyway. We are looking at fear, pre-hospital emergency anaesthesia. This is not a how to do a fear podcast. What we're aiming this at is road crews and our colleagues on the ground who may not have seen a fear before, who may not have received any training or education as to what it's all about. What we're hoping to do is provide a resource to give a little bit of awareness about what happens sometimes and what you can do to support the wider team if you find yourself looking after a patient who's receiving an anaesthetic. So we're going to split this podcast into two sections. The first half is the theory of fear, why we do it, which patients can benefit and the medicines that are used. And then the second half is really the practical elements of the procedure and what you can do as road crews to support the critical care team in delivering that anaesthetic to your patient. So even if you're not practicing fear yourself, uh, there should still be loads of stuff for you to learn. So uh, let's get started. Josh, you're going to be the person who I think we're going to be directing a lot of questions to, given your role. Uh, So I thought I'd start us off with a few uh, nice, easy ones for you. So fear, you've already talked about what fear stands for. It's pre-hospital emergency anaesthesia. But why is that a different name to RSI? RSI, rapid sequence induction or rapid sequence intubation, is the term to denote an unplanned or relatively unplanned anaesthetic delivered quite quickly to a patient that is not starved. So that does meet the criteria of uh, of the patients that we're talking about. It's just generally we tend to use the term RSI to describe the procedure when it's in hospital and we tend to use the term fear to describe it when it's out of hospital. And I suppose that could be interpreted as being quite pedantic about these name changes, but I think there is a very different risk profile when you're talking about this procedure in hospital delivered by an anaesthetic team with lots of other people and the capabilities of a hospital behind them. And then this procedure being delivered by a small critical care team with a large number of supporters to that team who may not have seen this procedure before. So there are different risk profiles, and I think that's why it's important to to use different terms for them. So what's involved in a fear? We'll obviously spend the rest of this podcast talking about it in 
in more detail than this. To put it really simply, I like to think of it as a more of a package of anesthesia. So there's an element that's designed to turn off the brain. That's your induction agent. There's an element that's designed to turn off the pain. That's your analgesic. So in this case, it'll be fentanyl, which we'll talk about later. And there's a paralytic agent, which is designed to stop the patient moving. And by delivering that, it allows us to take this critically unwell patient to protect their airway, to ventilate for them probably in a better way than they are able to themselves, and to take them to a place of definitive care whilst providing the interventions that matter to keep them alive to get there. Okay. And well, my my next question is, how much does it annoy you that you've got something to turn off the brain, something to turn off the pain, but then paralytic doesn't rhyme? Yeah, I'm it, I'm sure that's the biggest issue we're going to face in this podcast. <laughs> so who's performing uh who's performing fear in in the UK currently? Is this something that is done by paramedics or is it uh is it doctors only? Who who's doing the procedure currently? So that's a really important question to answer and I think the 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 first thing and the most important thing to bear in mind is fear is a team game. This this anesthetic is a team game. So you absolutely cannot deliver it on your own as an anaesthetic consultant. That would be ludicrous and would probably be very dangerous and difficult. So it requires a team that know one another well, that know the procedure well, and then are supported by a whole host of other people that make it go well. So it is definitely, definitely a team game and it cannot be performed with just one or two individuals. It needs the support of the the other team members that are looking after that patient to make it go well so throughout this we've been using the term fear team as opposed to a hems team because it isn't only hems charities that are delivering fear there's lots of other critical care agencies and critical care charities that might be fear providers but generally the team is made up of a consultant who will be typically a background of anesthesia or emergency medicine but there are other specialities out there and they will have dual trained to be a fem consultant a pre-hospital emergency medicine consultant and also forming part of that team they're generally backed up by either a critical care paramedic or enhanced care paramedic or a critical care nurse that will respond alongside them Definitely. And the rest of the team, as as you said, are hopefully some of the people who are listening are pre-hospitalists and uh, ambulance care providers who are going to be part of these procedures that are going on. So it's um, it's really important that we that we understand that we are part of the team and the things that we do will affect how successful this procedure is. My last question for you, Josh, before we move on to the next uh, section is fear is something that is often talked about both in literature and in general in in pre-hospital care as being considered one of if not the most dangerous procedure that can that can take place pre-hospitally why is that so i think dangerous is an interesting word i would probably say risk is better i don't think it is dangerous per se otherwise we wouldn't do it but but there's definitely uh, an increased risk associated with with performing the procedure and if you think about it, it's because you're taking one of the most poorly patients that you're likely to see. They're outside of a definitive care environment, i.e. a hospital, in an unscheduled care environment, in a very dynamic and changing environment, which is the pre-hospital theatre. And you're then going to give them drugs to stop them breathing. There's a risk that it will boot their blood pressure. There's a risk that their full stomach 
uh, will cause them to regurgitate and aspirate. And if the procedure is, is performed badly, ultimately, you have taken a bad situation and made it worse. So that is why we talk about it really being higher risk. And, and that is why so much work has gone into creating a process to mitigate that risk and minimize it as much as possible. And why teams will drill the procedure every day. Like I say, we, we will drill a fear uh, ideally every day at work so that we can work out any bugs and, and make sure that we've run through a process once that, that day in practice. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those procedures, isn't it, which um, I, I think sometimes when a critical care team arrives, it can all suddenly seem very formal. When, when the fear process starts, we go from the uh, the generally informal stance that we take at, uh, at most jobs uh, and suddenly things become very formal and that can sometimes feel a bit stifling. But I think it's important to uh, that people realise that there there is a very good reason for that, as you say. Maybe yeah, maybe dangerous isn't the right term, but you know me, I like to be uh, I like to be a bit dramatic. But yeah, the risks involved uh, are the reason for that for that process being in place. The thing which is important uh, in terms of the risk is that ultimately, as you say, if if a poorly conducted RSI goes wrong, um, it it could actually lead to very significant complications up to and including cardiac arrest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so that's why it is in such a structured and rigorous format. So, you know, it, it, it might seem a little bit silly that that we ask people not to talk and we'll we'll discuss that a little bit later. But during the procedure, the team teams will often ask for complete silence. And that's not just because, you know, we want all the, the attention to to look at us in our red suits. It's so that everybody can be implicitly focused on what's happening and everybody is focused on that patient to make this the safest possible procedure. But you do like to be looked at in your red suits, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) No comment. (laughs) That's probably for the best. Right then, let's move on. And shall I have a quick talk about the patients who might benefit from a pre-hospital anaesthesia? So there's a few different reasons that a patient that we're seeing pre-hospitally may need a fear. Firstly, and potentially most obviously, is an impending or worsening airway obstruction. And that may be swelling due to burns or chemical exposure, anaphylaxis potentially, significant airway bleeding, injury to the airway, or a hematoma in the neck, which is swelling and actually causing an obstruction. Respiratory failure is another reason. So by respiratory failure, obviously, we're talking about severely impaired and worsening ventilation and or oxygenation, which can't be adequately managed by any other means. So a patient with that degree of respiratory failure may require a a pre-hospital anaesthesia. Humanitarian reasons. So to relieve severe pain, distress or suffering in a severely injured or multiply injured patient, which cannot be safely managed through any other means. Neurological conditions with a reduced level of consciousness requiring support of the airway and ventilation to optimise neuroprotection. And under that same category, patients who are severely agitated and completely unmanageable uh, may require fear to stabilise and facilitate transfer to definitive care. So in particular, we're talking about head injury patients and, uh, and that sort of thing. And the last one to consider is 
a patient who's anticipated clinical course is expected to deteriorate rapidly when intubation or ventilation might have a major impact. So if the predicted clinical course of the patient would require an RSI on arrival at an emergency department to facilitate investigation or treatment, pre-hospital emergency anesthesia may expedite the transit to definitive care, although it's going to potentially prolong on-scene times. So often the patients that require a fear uh, will be a little bit of a mixed picture. So the the classic one would be your polytrauma patient that's got a head injury uh, and fractured ribs. Well, they've got ventilatory failure. They are reduced level of consciousness. So they're starting to obstruct their airway, which is making their ventilatory failure worse. Uh, and there's also obviously a bit of anticipated clinical course in there. So often it's a, it's a bit of a mis- mixed picture with them. Two things that I, I think are worth mentioning there. So first would be humanitarian reasons. Often these patients are so severely injured that we are completely unable to manage their analgesic needs. And they, they're often very unwell and, and poorly anyway. So a, an obvious example and the, the example that's often given in the guidelines is massive, massive surface area of burns. Not only are these patients in significant pain, but they might be suffering some element of respiratory failure by developing sort of a chest compartment syndrome and need uh, escherotomies and things like that. So I think it, it's just worth justifying there that it it's cases where we cannot meet their analgesic needs. So we would obviously try that first. And then the other thing would be anticipated clinical course. And this is very much a, a softer, I would say, reason for, for fear. And you would probably get differing teams offering different different opinions on whether or not this is a, a, a true indication for fear. So I think it's just one of those things that are worth considering in the background. Where's this patient going to be going? And to what degree would uh, a fear expedite their clinical course? But in in line with that, you've also got to balance the, the risk of the pre-hospital anaesthetic. So you've got to consider, okay, is that improvement in timely care worth the potential risk of a fear or would it be less risk comparatively to to do it in the ed so it's very much a a softer indication but uh but yeah absolutely those those top three a b or d problems are big indications for fear and i think it's fair to say that if you've got a patient who presents with one of those problems who you think may be suitable for a fear that it's it's not unreasonable to request um assistance from a critical care team to uh, come and and have a look and and they'll obviously be best placed to make that decision for us won't they so sorry josh i i asked that as a question but i didn't actually i wasn't, I wasn't actually came for an answer ah <laughs> uh, typical officer move <laughs> Josh, I'm aware that uh, you and I have been doing an awful lot of talking. So uh, shall we shall we let Simon uh, have a little turn? I, I believe, Simon, you're going to talk to us a little bit about the pharmacology of fear. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, nearly asleep myself then. I uh, thought you'd forgotten about me, boys. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, pharmacology. So just some general principles when we're going to talk about the drugs that are needed for um, a pre-hospital emergency anaesthetic. We want to have a kind of selection but the national recommendations are that there's any kind of limited choice that prevents confusion or 
too much complication so obviously josh will be able to elaborate in more detail but i'm sure most services just have a have a smaller selection of drugs than you might find in a traditional anesthetic environment many services pre-draw their drugs um so at the start of the shift they're kind of ready to do an anesthetic but i know that not all services do that but it's um something that, that some services do and then we also want some guidance on kind of predetermined drug dosing. So using things like charts um, and things that are going to minimize drug calculation and human errors. And when anesthetics are being given, we want to verbalize drug doses out loud, not just in um, micrograms or milligrams a kilogram and doses, but also in mils. So the whole team knows how much we're giving. The final th- recommendations for safety is that we use the Institute for Safe Medication Practices anesthetic labels. So in most services, I think this is different colored labels that um, go on the syringes. However, I find it really interesting, Josh, you were telling me that uh, your service uses different color syringes. Is, is that right? Yeah, so I don't know how common practice this is, but um, yeah, we, we use uh, large syringes with the corresponding colored plunger so that it's it's really easy to see at a distance what that person is holding and it's it's particularly useful for me as a member of that team is that you know you can see from the other end of the patient or some distance away if someone thinks they're about to give an induction agent and they pick up a red syringe well then you can say actually stop so it means that the whole team is checking the drug that you're giving as opposed to just the individual that's about to put it in the vein which is a really good human factors thing. So um, it's just another level of protection in this, as we talked about earlier, this potentially uh, complex and, and difficult procedure. So yeah, so I think it's a really good, uh, really good idea. Generally, then we're going to give our medications in a dosing regime of a three to one approach. So that means an analgesia, which usually is fentanyl, going to give uh, some ketamine which is our induction agent the paralytic of choice is normally uh, rocuronium although some services may still use succimethonium from the evidence that i've been reading rocuronium seems to be the preferred agent because mainly it has uh, much less side effects than succimethonium but um, i'd imagine there are still services out there that potentially might use uh, either or and then obviously the, the final drugs we need to think about are those drugs that we're going to give to maintain hemodynamics if something changes as a result of the anesthetic we're given. So a standard RSI drug regime would start with something like 3 micrograms per kilogram of fentanyl, then 2 milligrams a kilogram of ketamine, and then 1 milligram a kilogram of rocuronium. So that's your 3 to 1 approach of fentanyl, ketamine, and rocuronium. So obviously, these are just generalized recommended doses, but obviously they can vary. So let's talk about them as individual medications. Ketamine is a drug that I'm sure most people in pre-hospital care would have heard of. It's a disassociative anesthetic that works by blocking NMDA receptors. And the usual dose given is one to two milligrams a kilogram for anesthesia. So I know I said two milligrams uh, a minute ago, but obviously that's just a standard regime. It can be varied. It has a 45 to 60 second onset time and a duration of about 10 to 20 minutes. And it was previously believed that ketamine could raise ICP and therefore often was avoided in patients with traumatic brain injury because we were worried about raising the ICP. That's largely now been disproven as quite widely used for this indication especially pre-hospitally 
He's also been shown to have some really good potential bronchodilator effects. So actually asthmatic patients that are undergoing anesthesia, they're quite a dangerous cohort of patients to be putting under an anesthetic, but it, it might have some benefit in those patients. His main contraindications like any drug is a hypersensitivity uh, reaction or allergy, but it does have a few adverse effects that we kind of need to consider. Next, we're going to move on to the paralytics. So as I said, the most common one is rocuronium. So that is a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, and that works by blocking the acetylcholine from binding to postsynaptic motor receptors. So basically, this is at our uh, junctions between nerves and skeletal muscle. It's going to stop that depolarization from happening, and then that leads to a paralysis. Its onset of action is about 60 seconds, and then its duration of action is 60 to 90 minutes. Now, that is much longer than succimethonium, as we were talking about earlier. But actually, again, that could be quite beneficial in the pre-hospital environment because it means that we don't have to kind of maintain paralytics as often because our transfer times are probably going to be well i'd imagine most of the time less than 60 to 90 minutes unless you work in a really rural area as i said the dosing is in the three to one approach is one milligram a kilogram however most guidelines actually talk about a closer to 1.2 milligrams a kilogram but as i said earlier it's got a really good and low side effect profile when compared to um to succimethonium so as far as I'm concerned, and to my knowledge, it's becoming the standard uh, drug pre-hospitally. Finally, let's talk about the, the opiates. That's going to be fentanyl. Obviously, it's got analgesic properties, which we want, but it's also to blunt the laryngeal reflex. Josh, can you explain a little bit about what we mean by the laryngeal reflex and why we need to blunt it? Yeah, sure. So if you think what we're about to do, we're about to stick a uh, large metal blade into someone's mouth so that we can get a view of their cords. So that's going to be really hyper-stimulating. And although we're turning the brain off, that doesn't necessarily turn off the sympathetic pain response. So there's a subset of patients, particularly the ones we care about, are our head-injured patients, where if we if we just put the blade straight in, you get a, a pain and a hyper-stimulated response despite the fact that the patient's un unconscious. So they get a, a tachycardia, they get a spike in their blood pressure, which is not stuff that we really want to happen if this patient is bleeding into their skull. So fentanyl a lot of the time is used, one, because it's an, an, a nice pain relief for the patient, but the the thing that we're often talking about when using fentanyl is to try and blunt that laryngeal reflex and, and prevent a spike in hypertension to worsen somebody bleeding into their head. Of course, it, fentanyl is an opiate, so there is uh, the usual hypotension risks with fentanyl, although I believe it's less than morphine if, if hypotension is a grave concern to us. So it's a patient that's bleeding, it's a patient that's hemodynamically unstable, then we may drop the fentanyl or, or drop it altogether. Yeah, and that leads me nicely on to um, the variation in regime if you've got kind of a tunded polytrauma bleeding patients as you quite rightly said Josh we don't want to be giving agents that might drop the blood pressure quite significantly so then a lot of services move to a, a like a one-to-one -one approach so it's a, a similar dose of uh, rocuronium but they will then give small doses of ketamine uh, as the induction agent still but uh, obviously using its analgesic properties as the analgesia within the induction so we don't get the the negative effects of the opiate and I, and I guess the takeaway point is to not get too hung up on the dosing. It's a really difficult aspect of, of delivering a, the anaesthetic. And there's a reason that this is a, a level eight consultant delivered 
skill because because a lot of this stuff is is quite difficult and uh, and it's really nuanced dependent on the patient that you've got in front of you the, the, i guess the the reason that we're discussing it is so you've got a bit of an understanding about the drugs and when you hear teams going what do you want mate do you want a 321 induction or do you want a 111 that is generally what we're talking about and of course, it may not be these three agents. So, Simon, you mentioned about post-ROSC earlier and, and some of the negative effects that you would get from ketamine. So if we've got a patient who's in post-ROSC, they've got myocardial stunning, they've got they, they've got a heart that we want to protect. Ideally, we don't want to induce a tachycardia in them. So what you may find teams using, if they're delivering an anesthetic, they may swap out the induction agent for midazolam, uh, midazolam and ROC. So it would then change again. So yeah, these things are liable to change and they're very nuanced for the patient that you've got in front of you. But uh, but yeah, I think it's quite useful to have a bit of an understanding about some of the words, some of the terms that are thrown around. And finally, the last three things that we need to think about are kind of supportive measures that I mentioned. So things like fluids, uh, vasopressors such as metaraminol. So if we do accidentally get some hypertension, um, then we're going to want to think about those in, in some of our RSI patients. And then obviously uh, things like adrenaline as a um, inotrope for a little bit of uh, support for both the blood pressure and uh, increase in cardiac output. So those are kind of drugs that we would give if our induction of anesthesia causes some abnormal and unwanted hemodynamic changes and then probably just to finish that off simon it's, it might just be worth mentioning the the different syringe colors or the different label colors that that people will see so from the institute for uh, safe medication practices that different groups of medications will align to their appropriate colored label or their appropriately colored syringe so induction agents uh, will have a yellow label so that's your ketamine that's your propofol Benzodiazepines will have an orange label, so midazolam, uh, diazepam. Muscle relaxants, so succimethonium or rocuronium in this case, will have a red label. Opioids will have a light blue, so most people will be familiar with the label colour of morphine. Um, that's indicative that it's from the opiate class of medications, so your fentanyls and morphines will be uh, within that. And your vasopressors will be a purple or a violet coloured label so that's your adrenalines and your metaraminols and and there's lots of other different colors uh to signify medications that we'll, we'll put up on the website but uh but, but those are the particularly relevant ones that you're likely to see in this in this context so there's a simple bit of pharmacology about some of the drugs that you might notice being used during a fear however i think Obviously, the purpose of this podcast is just to give a really good overview to the ground crews and to pre-hospital care clinicians that might be involved in this procedure from an ambulance perspective. So, um, Alex, do you want to tell us about the preparation for the procedure and what we can do to help before the critical care team arrive? As we said before, this is a this is a team game. This isn't just about the critical care team arriving, giving drugs and intubating. The things that pre-hospitalists do prior to arrival can be the things that make the difference between this being a nice, safe and easy fear or one that becomes a little bit more complicated. So the first thing to think about, really, and the thing that I tend to think about as uh as a sort of scene commander um, at a patient who, who may be having a fear, is location. One of the main things that the team are going to need is 360 degree access. That's, that's really important for a, for a whole variety of reasons. 
So when we're thinking about location, we've got two choices really, outside or in the truck. If you're outside, you've got 360 degree access, generally speaking, at most uh, most places you can find somewhere with, with good access. You've got plenty of space to adjust the height because the height of the trolley, as we'll, I'm sure Josh is going to talk about later, the height of the trolley is is quite relevant to the incubator, the positioning, and there's just more space outdoors. But conversely, inside the truck, you have weather protection, you've got more privacy, there's potentially better light, and there may be a safety element as well. So the location is is quite important now every fear that i've ever been involved with has been done outside usually just by the ramp of the uh, of the vehicle so that it can be completed and then the patient can be taken in but it's worth giving con- some consideration to if if the team decide to go ahead with the fear where are we actually going to do this yeah and and that can seem sometimes really counterintuitive when a when a crew has done a really good job of getting a patient nicely packaged on board the truck just just waiting for us to to arrive ready to go to hospital and then we're saying okay uh, you've done a great job can we just get them out of the truck again please and i'm sh- i'm sure that must seem really really counterintuitive but it's it's just to ensure that we've got as you say 360 degrees access as well as our equipment in appropriate spaces because it was slightly less bad in the mercedes ambulances and the mercedes box conversions but certainly in the newer the the national ambulance format they're very small and they're very cramped for space and it's it's hard to get even the critical care team in the back of them let alone the additional people and the additional paramedics and ambulance crew that we would like ideally they're supporting us and 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 uh, and helping to perform the anesthetic one thing that may that you may encounter outside there is problems with the weather and we're not just talking about rain here now obviously rain is going to be a factor but there's there's cold, you may, you may even be potentially looking at snow, but also extremes of temperature in terms of it being really hot, that can also be just as problematic, particularly for the crews and, um, and critical care, you know, in their, in their shiny jumpsuits that can, I'm sure they probably get a bit hot sometimes, but also the light level is, is very important. We don't want things to be too bright, but also we don't want people to be trying to intubate in the dark. So all of these things are factors and there's no right or wrong answer but it's just things to think about particularly before before a critical care team arrives another thing to consider is confidentiality and and privacy for the patient many of these incidents in which fear is going to be considered are going to be some of the more dramatic incidents that that pre-hospitalists might be attending particularly if we've got helicopters and other things going on so be aware of of people who are watching bystanders particularly the press people with cameras unfortunately there there are as i'm sure we all know there are some rather unscrupulous individuals out there who will quite happily take photos of things going on so that's just another thing to be to be aware of and i think this is one of the best examples of why fear is such a team game because you you are reliant on all of the people around you and all of the professionals around you to make this to make this work well so i've definitely done fears before between a pair of ambulances to give us an element of privacy heart or fire crews are really good at giving you some kind of shelter so a lot of the time they've got tarpaulins or something like that that can just be stretched out over the top of you either to give you shelter from the rain or to be 
to be completely honest, to give you shelter from the sunshine. So uh, yeah, it's it's all about using that team to manipulate the environment to to optimize it for fear. And uh, and as I say, that 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 involves every professional that's on scene to uh, to to achieve that. Yeah, so when I've seen fears done at night before, the um, fire service have put up really bright lights. So, yeah, completely agree, Josh. It's um, the benefits of having multiple people there is, is really useful. And often, you know, fear is is a really task-focused skill that the, the team, of, you know, the critical care team are going to need to concentrate on. So it is really important that we have other people managing the scene and, you know, doing other things and thinking about extrication and pre-alerts and other parts of this incident that are still ongoing that are going to need just as much important input. Because while the critical care team are concentrating on performing this fear and, and maybe some, some of our teams are involved with that, you know, there are other things that need to be done for the benefit of this patient. So, Josh, just going back to going back to the weather quickly, what how, what can we do to help with sort of bright sunlight you know if if we're out if we're outside say on the roadside and it is a bright sunny day what what type of things can we do to to help in that situation yeah so sunlight is in in some ways uh it being too bright is worse than it being too dark because if you imagine what you're trying to do if you're using direct laryngoscopy then you're trying to to have a look down a, a dark hole and if you've got bright ambient weather or the sun glaring into your face then that is less helpful and and more so if you're trying to use video laryngoscopy which is becoming the the first line preference for most critical care teams i feel then you 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 can end up having a lot of glare on the screen and 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 it's very poorly contrasting and and what should be a really easy view because you're using a vl can can sometimes be much worse the things that can be done area selection is probably the, the the biggest help so if there's a very obvious location where we can move the patient to to perform a fear nicely um then then let's do that if we can go inside if there's a nice big table that we can put a, a patient on so that they're they're at an appropriate height or if the a room can be cleared to generate enough space that would be preferable we, we've moved patients down roads to do a an anaesthetic in the shelter of a of a abandoned petrol station before so you're just under that under that shelter or equally tarpaulin so just um positioning tarpaulin overhead or the team's back to the sun so you haven't got the the, the sun glaring in your eyes um are all things that can be really helpful ultimately the the team will be there to to support with area selection but if we turn up and there's a, a lovely private area that's been cornered off with a couple of ambulances and there's uh four firefighters or, or four colleagues from heart that are ready to hold a tarpaulin above us then um we're definitely not going to turn down such a, a luxurious anesthetic room great so once we've had a, a think about location another thing that we can look at before even before the before a critical care team arrive is pre-oxygenation now if this is a patient who we're fairly certain is going to receive a fear or is potentially going to be a candidate for a fear if we're looking at a patient who's got multiple injuries or is a major trauma then we can potentially be involved in starting the pre-oxygenation whether that's done with a non-rebreathe mask potentially some assisting ventilations or apneic oxygenation using nasal cannula Josh, what do you? What are your thoughts on uh, crews assisting with pre-oxygenation? I know you want to talk a bit about assisted ventilations. Yeah, so absolutely, particularly if you're confident and and 
feel that this patient is definitely a candidate for an anesthetic, there's no reason that you couldn't start pre-oxygenation or, or put the elements in place to to start pre-oxygenation. So I think there's probably three elements to talk about. So there's pre-oxygenation, there's denitrogenation, and there's apneic oxygenation. So uh, pre-oxygenation and denitrogenation kind of go hand in hand. We're about to take away this patient's airway. We're about to stop them breathing. So ideally, we want to set them up to be physiologically the best they can be for that short period of time that they're going to have uh, no airway in and not be breathing. So we ideally want the oxygen saturations to be as high as we can get them, which is why we would put a patient on either a high flow mask or put them on a BVM with high flow O2 uh, if their airway is otherwise being managed. The other aspect is denitrogenation. So uh, up to about one third of our tidal volume, so around 150 mils of of our tidal volume in adults is anatomical dead space. So it's all of the elements of our respiratory tract that don't partake in gaseous exchange. So the oropharynx, laryngopharynx, the trachea, the bronchioles, all of that is dead space. So we talk about denitrogenating that area. So getting rid of the nitrogen that is uh, essentially no good for us and filling it up with, with oxygen and turning that dead space into a channel through which the patient can still receive oxygen. So we do this by uh, putting high flow O2 on them and by putting uh, nasal specs on, on the patient. Uh, and that can be turned up to, to 15, 15 litres of, uh, of oxygen to, to try and fill as much of that up with O2 as possible. The additional benefit of putting the nasal specs on is it allows us to provide apneic oxygenation. So for that period of time where we're no longer ventilating the patient, where we're putting the laryngoscope in to look for our view, by having 15 litres of nasal cannular air being pushed pu- pushed through the nose and pushed down uh, into the respiratory tract, we're able to prolong the period of safe apnea so that we're able to prolong the period of time before that patient starts to desaturate because that small amount of positive pressure from the high flow nasal oxygen will uh, will force it down into the alveoli and, and allow some gas exchange to uh, to take place and in healthy adults there's been safe apnea times demonstrated of 40 minutes plus so there is a really a good amount of evidence uh, to, to support this clearly in critically unwell patients and and obese patients who may have an element of of physiologic shunt in their lungs um this is this is less effective but it's really useful to do it anyway to to maximize that safe apnea time and minimize the chance of desaturation in these critically unwell patients so uh yeah to answer your question absolutely we can we can start to pre-oxygenate them absolutely we can put the nasal specs on if the patient is conscious 15 liters of nasal o2 can be really irritating so it's absolutely fine to 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 put it put the nasal cannula on and connect it all up but not have that necessarily flowing until we're ready to do the procedure and the other thing that you mentioned was was around ventilation. Clearly, if a patient needs ventilating, then then we should be doing that. But uh, what what we often talk about and what we want to bear in mind is minimizing how much gastric insufflation takes place with these patients that we're about to intubate. So we just obviously need to be careful about pushing too much air into that that stomach, filling it up, and then potentially having a big vomit just as we're about to get our view. Perfect. So once we've considered pre-oxygenation, I think another area that we can definitely look at prior to the arrival of a critical care team or, or whilst things are whilst they're arriving and, and things are being started is the actions that we can take to stabilize hemodynamic instability, which has quite an impact on the decision to perform a fear or, or not. So 
Simon, what have you got any ideas on what sort of thing we could do to uh, to reverse hemodynamic instability? Yeah, so these are all things that we should be doing as part of our primary survey and our management of a trauma patient in particular. So standard stuff like uh, under circulation, let's stop any uh, external hemorrhage where possible with whatever methods we've got, if that's uh, tourniquets or direct pressure and and dressings. We want to bind pelvises and pull limbs straight so that we've got less risk of bleeding. We want to make sure that we've given our tranexamic acid as early as possible. And then we need to think about fluid resuscitation. So until recently, I was kind of sat in the camp that trauma patients should only have blood and not have fluid. However, I think since the refill trials come out, we may be going slightly back on that. So maybe fluids aren't as bad as we once thought. So perhaps we should be, you know, giving cautious small amounts of fluid uh, if we haven't got blood products to maintain kind of a radial pulse or a blood pressure around 90 millimeters of mercury for blunt trauma or around 60 millimeters of mercury in our penetrating trauma patients. So basically we want to just make sure that our cardiovascular and hemodynamics are as stable as possible, ready for that emergency anesthesia you could debate the results of refill as people are doing on twitter uh, all day long uh, we're definitely not going to do that but yeah th- these patients before they get an anesthetic there's a risk that their blood pressure might drop when we take away some of that sympathetic drive so they're going to need an element of refilling if they are underfilled anyway it's just about being cautious with that fluid isn't it don't don't bang it in but uh, ultimately if uh, if they need some something to replace some volume to get an element of perfusion back then then that's going to be needed prior to the anesthetic being delivered obviously most critical care teams these days will carry blood product uh, which Again, there's debate whether or not that's a better fluid to resuscitate them within the pre-hospital arena. I think it probably is. So we w- we would probably elect to use some of that as well to fill them back up. But uh, it's it's all about applying it to the situation in front of you. And I think other things. I'm not sure if you uh, if you did mention it just then, Simon. But uh, also, you know, warming. Uh, if we're looking at a trauma patient activation of warming blankets that sort of thing because especially the air activated ones they can take up to 20 minutes to properly activate with the with the heat packs Uh, yeah temperature control really important alex that's a really fantastic point to add so moving on to equipment then so alex do you want to talk us through how we can set up equipment ready for this pre-hostal emergency anesthesia and how we can help the critical care teams out Yeah, I think this is a really positive, really big takeaway point. We've got a really great acronym, which is TUBES. Now, this isn't an approved acronym. This is something which I believe, Josh, one of your colleagues came up with. But TUBES stands for two oxygen cylinders, undress, and uh, that's the patient, not the critical care team. (laughs) (laughs) Depends if it's a Friday night or not, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. Yeah, it depends. Only if you buy him a drink first. We know Josh likes to do his fears with his pants outside his trousers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you you is uh, undress the patient. B bilateral large bore IV access. And so I I don't know how you feel about it, but I would say green or bigger. You know, I mean access is access, but really in this situation we we want large bore access uh, as far as reasonably possible, or potentially IO access. 
the, there's that adage, isn't there? I'd rather have a cannula in the vein than a cannula on the floor, particularly in the context of trauma. We'd like it big, particularly if we're going to be infusing them with fluid. But yeah, ideally two, two IV access uh, in each ACF would be, uh, would be ideal. So E, ensure 360 degree access. We've already talked about that. And S in, in our acronym would be suction units. For most services, they're going to be looking for two suction units. And um, what we want is suction units that are set up not with the cylinders half popped out and none of the tubing attached and none of the yank hours ready to hand. So we need to check the unit, make sure that it's working. Ideally, plug everything in ready. If it was me setting up, I would probably have an adult yank hour and then either a fine bore or a pediatric one ready with a selection, depending on what's going to be used. So just to run through that acronym one more time, because I, I think it's a really good one. It's tubes, two oxygen cylinders, undress the patient, bilateral large bore IV access, ensure 360 degree access and suction units times two. Josh, do you want to talk to us a bit about positioning? Because I know that positioning is going to be a really crucial part of the process when we come to actually, or when when you come to actually look at uh, intubation. So like with all intubations, you want your first look to be your best look. So you should be doing everything that's practically possible to optimize that. And we know intubating somebody on the floor is not conducive to getting good views and getting successful intubations. So in all but the most extreme circumstances, uh, and I would probably suggest that is only crash tubes, we're going to be aiming to do this procedure with a patient scooped and on a bed. With that bed at the optimal height for the person who's doing the intubation. That will be different for each person, but generally in this context, it would be somebody kneeling at the head end of the bed so that they're not having to stoop over or lean back. So that, that's going to be different depending on who operator one is. Uh, and if possible, we want to be putting their, their head in a position uh, where it's in that sniffing the morning air position where the tragus of the ear is aligned with the sternal notch to absolutely optimize that, that view. And in cases where our patient is perhaps pregnant or obese, particularly their, their head ramped quite a bit up. And as all of you listening probably know as pre-hospitalists, doing all of that stuff takes real time. So if the team can arrive to a patient that's already on a bed in, in an adequate position, that, that really saves huge amounts of time down the line. The next thing that needs to happen when preparing is appropriate monitoring attached. The Association of Anaesthetists AAGBI standards say that every fear patient must have blood pressure attached and cycling every three minutes, SpO2, entidal CO2, 3-lead ECG, uh, all attached for, for monitoring for, for every anaesthetic that we're giving these patients. So we need to ensure that's all in place. And Josh, something that people... Uh, something that I hear quite often during debriefs and similar when I'm talking to uh, to other pre-hospitalists is why do critical care teams come and then they take all of our equipment off and they have to put their own equipment on? Why can't they just use ours? My understanding of that is that it's a it's to do with bandwidth and it's a sort of crew crew room management sort of situation where you're using equipment that you're familiar with. Is that uh, is is that your understanding? Yeah, so that's definitely a large part of it. When you're looking to see whether or not the patient's blood pressure is appropriate or whether their SATs have dropped, you want to know exactly which section of the screen to to look at. And you've got to you've got to remember 
a large number of critical care teams may cross multiple ambulance services. So not all ambulance crews may be using the same monitor that, that you you use in your area. Uh, so a lot of the time it's it's important to use kit that's familiar to them. The other element is that the, the critical care team will be reviewing this job as part of their governance process. So most critical care teams that I'm aware of have monthly governance sessions where they discuss these kind of jobs. And if they're performing an anaesthetic, this job will definitely be discussed at their governance session. And they will dig down into the minute by minute data of this anesthetic looking to see how well it was it was performed so they'll be looking to see if if during induction there was a drop in blood pressure or they'll be looking to see whilst there was uh, apnea whilst they were doing laryngoscopy if there was a drop in sats and that's so much easier if it's on your monitor that you can port across directly to your documentation software rather than having to manually input it if it's a monitor that doesn't align or doesn't port directly over to to, to your documentation uh, stuff so it's it's not a it's not a preciousness it's not a our monitor is better than your monitor it truly is that crm element and the fact that we don't want to have to put 150 observation values for the duration of the anesthetic it manually into our paperwork Oh, okay. That's actually a, uh, I, I didn't actually know that aspect to it. So that's really interesting. Right. What, uh, what's the next thing we need to talk about then? Uh, are we going to have a little chat about allocation of roles during a, uh, during a fear? Yeah, shall I take that one? So generally, there are a number of fixed roles that we would have allocated as part of our team brief. So the first role I'm going to talk about is operator one. This is generally the person at the head end of the patient by the airway who will be doing the intubation as the first look so they're going to be doing the tube they'll be doing the airway assessment they're the one that's going to be ensuring their their head is positioned correctly the trolley is at the correct height and they'll probably be deciding the initial tube size that you're going to go for and the airway plan that's going to be in conjunction with operator two who is primarily responsible for doing the kit dump. So this is the person that as soon as we identify this patient needs a fear, they're going to politely excuse themselves to find somewhere to do that or go into the fabulously chosen anesthetic space that, that the road crew has already highlighted to us. They're going to be ensuring that all of the equipment that we've discussed so far, the two suctions, the multiple oxygen bottles and fluids, etc., everything that we need to perform the anesthetic is, is there and ready. And they're going to be setting out the airway kit. So they'll have a an airway tray, which will have all of the equipment that they need on it for plan A. They'll be sorting out their plan B, C and D equipment, which we'll come on to talk about in a minute. The team's then going to need somebody to provide ELM, extra laryngeal manipulation, or in some cases, cricoid pressure. Now, we are not going to go into a big discussion around cricoid pressure and whether or not it's used, sometimes termed the Selex maneuver. What I will do is I'll put a good video up on the on the article uh, that was a discussion probably an infamous discussion now between two doctors one of them was uh, dr john hines doing a humorous pros and cons debate for cricoid pressure now you've got to take the debate with a pinch of salt as i say it is humorous and dr john hines cricolol lecture is is uh, is particularly well known so uh, I'm not suggesting that it is gospel and the best evidence that's out there, but it does provide 
a reasonably well-balanced discussion around whether or not certain people find cricoid pressure useful. It is in a lot of guidelines and there may still be some services that expect cricoid pressure to be applied. So it is something that you might hear. Very quickly, I'll discuss the differences between the two. So the cricoid pressure or the Selix maneuver involves an assistant applying a reasonable amount of pressure to the cricoid ring in the neck. The theory behind it is that it will push the trachea back against the esophagus and occlude to some degree the esophagus, preventing regurgitation and aspiration into the oropharynx and laryngopharynx during intubation. As I've said, it is somewhat controversial. Uh, there's a degree of evidence that suggests it doesn't work and only goes as far as to worsen your view. But the reason that I'm mentioning it is to differentiate it from ELM, extra laryngeal manipulation. So this is what used to be termed burp, backwards, upwards, rightwards pressure, which involves taking your finger and thumb, placing it over the thyroid cartilage. So that's the area of the neck that men have as the Adam's apple and manipulating that to improve your view of the vocal cords. We tend to use the term ELM because backwards, upwards, rightwards isn't always the best thing. So if the team are asking you to be the ELM operator, what I would suggest is you get ready and put your finger and thumb there on the thyroid cartilage so you can find it. And I would expect the operator, operator one, to manipulate your hand to best improve their view. They'll then tell you to hold it there. And that's where you need to hold it whilst they perform the intubation. Dependent on the situation, we may need somebody to hold C-spine. So this would be somebody who is positioned down towards the patient's body, holding manual inline stabilization in pretty much the opposite way that we would ordinarily hold it. So if you imagine how you might hold a patient's neck positioned up at the head end, obviously operator one is there. So you're going to need to provide some counter support and stabilization for the head whilst laryngoscopy is going on. And then the fifth and final person that forms part of that immediate fear team is the team leader. And often this will be somebody who's positioned towards the foot of the patient. They will be running the job, running the timeline, ensuring everything is in play and controlling communication. And finally, they will be the person that's reading the checklist prior to drugs being administered. So moving on to airway then, what, what kind of things are we going to be talking about uh, under airway? Well, most teams will be preparing to follow a plan A, B, C, D type format. So this is what's supported by the DAS algorithm. You might have also heard of Vortex, which is another difficult airway algorithm. So different teams may use different things, but principally you'll have plan A, which will generally be intubation. And that may be using direct laryngoscopy or video laryngoscopy as their primary look. So if you're unable to get that and you're unable to get that with modifications, you'll then move on to plan B, which will be some form of supraglottic airway, such as an eye gel. If you're still unable to ventilate and oxygenate the patient using plan B, plan C is generally face masked with basic airway adjuncts, so OPA, NPA. And if you're, if you're unable to ventilate and oxygenate the patient, then you're in a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario. Plan D is generally a form of front of neck access, which in the case of a critical care team is going to be a surgical airway by cutting the cricothyroid membrane. They don't always have to be in that order. So if, you know, if your critical care team turns up and the patient has like nearly 
you know, really significant maxillofacial injuries and actually superglottic or face ventilation is not going to work and intubation is going to be really difficult. There, there might be times when we just move straight away to a, a surgical airway. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, indeed. So it is patient specific as well. But what's important is that the team know the plan. So as standard, I would expect what I've just described to be the plan. If you've got a reasonably anatomically normal airway uh, and you're not predicting significant difficulties, but that may fluctuate dependent on the patient you've got in, in, in front of you. So yeah, clearly if the mouth barely exists and there's no facial structures, then then plan C in in the ordinary way would not work. What's important is that is discussed in the team brief and everyone knows what the plan of action is prior to giving the stuff that stops the patient breathing. Um, So let's move on to breathing then, uh, some of the things that we'll consider in breathing. We've really kind of talked about pre-oxygenation, apneic oxygenation. I I guess one of the things that you may see is what's called a delayed sequence intubation. Again, I think these are reasonably rare, but what what might happen is if we're unable to oxygenate the patient adequately, they may need a little bit of sedation to facilitate ventilation, facilitate oxygenation. So an obvious case of this would be combative ROSC patients or combative head injury patients may need a small amount of sedation to optimise their physiology prior to the full anaesthetic. Circulation, as we've already discussed, you need two points of IV access. So that may, if you're unable to get it, that may mean going to IO but not always. So it's clinically situationally dependent. What I probably wouldn't suggest is that if you're struggling to, to you know, get a second IV that you bang an IO in immediately because new faces, new members of the team arriving might be able to get IV access uh, using, using different things. But, uh, but generally, we would like two points of access in case one of them fail post the anaesthetic. <coughs> Ultrasound. Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah. So, so you, you you may yeah you may elect to use ultrasound equally if it's a really unwell patient you may elect to just crack on and go straight for io it depends depends on the situation doesn't it once you've got the ultrasound out of the box and all of that kind of stuff but yeah that's definitely something not to discount so then then generally we would like some fluids running so a bag of fluids not on the blood pressure arm we would ideally ask that that's running slowly so that demonstrates patency so it one it shows us that that iv access is still working so our reserve is still working and The reason that we have it hung ready to go is that if the anaesthetic drops the patient's blood pressure, we're able to open that up to refill them whilst we're starting to to work on on correcting the hypotension. So that's, that's some of the main things with the patient. I guess one of the final things I probably want to mention is with regards to the kit dump. And generally, we'll try and do this a little bit away and bring the patient to the kit dump. Obviously, that's not always possible. But a lot of the time, particularly, you know, if it's an RTC, you don't want to be doing an anaesthetic when you're surrounded by glass and all sorts of noisy fire equipment. So we may elect to do the kit dump a little bit away from the scene and bring the patient to to us so that we can just have a slightly more optimized environment. I think one of the things that I'm really taking away from this conversation and, and from what I've seen is that actually there is so much that can be done before critical care arrive to facilitate this procedure done by people that are not in the immediate critical care team. So I think it's really important that we understand this process really well as as ambulance clinicians and be able to optimise this by all the other stuff that's needed. 
Yeah, it, it, that's that's entirely it, Simon. So some of the best anaesthetics that I've been involved in and some of the, the quickest on-scene times and some of the best clinical care that we've given to a patient whilst performing a fear hasn't really been anything that us as the critical care team have done. It's been all of the prep that's been done by the ambulance crew. It's been the fantastic rapid handovers prior to us beginning the fear. And it's been getting all of these things that take time in place so that would be the absolute dynamite scene and the absolute dynamite situation is if all of this time intensive stuff, the stuff that really matters and the stuff that when it goes wrong, you really feel it is done prior to the critical care team arriving. That makes the fear go really smoothly. Once all of that's in play, hopefully we're now standing around the patient all ready to go. I'd expect then a short brief to take place. So we sometimes talk about a 10 seconds for 10 minutes or a heads in just to ensure that everyone around us is clear on what we're doing and why we're doing it, as well as this would be the opportunity for operator one and operator two to very quickly discuss their induction plan and ensure that everyone's on the same page before moving on to the pre-fear checklist. So Simon, do you want to talk to us a little bit about the importance of a checklist and what makes a good checklist? Yeah, so we want the entire team to know uh, what's about to take place. So that plan needs to be verbalised out loud. And then the purpose of a checklist is to make sure that we have everything ready and to minimise the risk of human error or, um, is that right? Uh, human error being made, is that right? The the irony of you making a mistake in that yeah. sentence. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 well, right, okay. <laughs> Okay. If only you'd used a checklist, Simon. I know. <laughs> so what a checklist is for is it is a check and response process. It is not a tick sheet. It's not something that should be completed and then filled in for audit. It is literally something that should be used there and then to make sure that everything is ready. This is normally done by the team leader. So they will be stood at the foot end. And this doesn't have to be someone who is part of the critical care team but obviously the critical care team need to be the person who probably responds to the person doing the checklist. So this might be the paramedic that is running the scene, or it might be the paramedic that's running the incident or the scene commander, or it could be anyone who has this checklist. But these should be written down and should be in a logical standard format that is always used by the critical care team. I have to say in my experience simply because this is a process which is which is drilled so well and so frequently by critical care teams it it does tend to be the team leader who's um who is running the actual fear process who does do the checklist so uh, I think you're absolutely right you know it doesn't need to be uh, doesn't need to be that person but in my experience it does tend to be simply, simply for that reason I think because they're so familiar with the procedure Maybe that's my experience of in hospital because actually normally it's not the anaesthetics team that go through the uh, the, the checklist when we're doing RSI. Yeah, because you, you're probably right, whereas actually a, a team leader in hospital is probably quite used to doing this. But um, pre-hospital, it's, uh, it's obviously the team that drill it regularly, which actually brings up another point that it would be really nice if we could do simulation regularly with our critical care team so that we kind of get used to this process. So if any students or paramedics or, or ambulance clinicians get an opportunity to do some sim and do some training with uh, critical care. I think that's a really, uh, really good opportunity. But anyway, back to the checklist. So the most important thing is we need a sterile cockpit. So by sterile cockpit, 
that to me means kind of silence so so it yeah so that that's a key thing simon it doesn't mean silence what we might say at the end of the checklist so our checklist ends silence please and that's the indication that we would then give the drugs but a sterile cockpit doesn't mean people shut up and be quiet so sterile cockpit is clearly an aviation term and essentially what that means is in in the higher risk stages of flight so we talk about takeoff decision point and landing decision point if if you haven't reached if, if you're still in the process of taking off or you're in the process of landing that cockpit becomes sterile and it means that the only communication that occurs is to do with the process of aviation safety landing or taking off so it doesn't mean people in the back shut up and let the people in the front focus it means that everyone's looking out no one's chatting about what they did at the weekend and it means if someone in the back sees a safety problem so they see i don't know one of the airport uh, runway check cars still on the runway or about to come from one of the taxiways onto the runway they call it out because that's relevant to flight safety and we would expect exactly the same stuff in this stage of the fear so we don't want ambulance crews and our road colleagues to say nothing we only want people to be saying stuff that is relevant and appropriate to maintaining the safety of that procedure so if you've seen something that you think we haven't and generally a flashing on a monitor or a monitor making noise or an observation that was fine one minute and is now deranged please let us know because that's what it's all about this is quite a focused and bandwidth intensive thing so the people that are standing around the peripheries perhaps the person that's holding a bag of fluid that's just watching the process will have a lot more mental bandwidth to recognize stuff and i've definitely had it loads of times where ambulance crews have said guys have you seen the monitor it might be that we have and we haven't verbalized it or equally it might be that we've missed something and uh, and that's what it's all about it's absolutely not about shut up unless you're you're doing something physically it's just about being safe and focusing on the patient i think it's really good that we've clarified that point because actually from my perspective and in my opinion this should be a flat hierarchy procedure we've all seen those videos of deteriorating anesthetics that's been used for years of the um the bromley case and i actually think that it's really important that any member of the team no matter what grade you are can speak up and can challenge something that they feel is dangerous and can alert people to things within the team because it might be something that someone hasn't noticed that could save a patient's life so silence isn't what it's about it's about speaking up if you have concerns or pointing out things uh, and working as a team so you said josh that in your checklist uh, in your organization that the silence please is the last part of the checklist and and that's the indication to to drugs going in so when the drugs go in what what sort of thing are we looking for in that situation what i'd expect to happen at that point is yeah at this point it's a sterile cockpit so whoever's giving the drugs so it isn't necessarily always the doctor uh, who who's giving it but wh- whoever's putting the drugs in would would probably be verbalizing what they're putting in and what amount they're putting in just in case anything's changed but also it's it's a good cognitive check step to say i'm going to give seven mils of this and if it looks like you're giving the whole thing then maybe we need to um, to have a word and then the rocuronium so the red uh, labeled or red plunged syringe is the last to go in and from that point we are looking for the patient to become paralyzed so probably around depending on the patient's hemodynamics uh, anywhere from 
maybe 45 to 60 seconds, maybe as long as 90 seconds, we're looking for the, the rock uranium to take effect. So we would be looking for laxity in the jaw and the patient to become apneic, which obviously they're going to stop breathing, but we're also going to be looking at the end tidal cabinography for, for that to, to take effect. Once that's happened, we'll begin laryngoscopy. So uh, whether you're using DL or VL, operator one is generally going to be talking through their view. And that's to ensure that the entire team have situational awareness. So you're probably going to be hearing things like, okay, the mouth's opening. Maybe they might say their malampati score, tongue, tongue, posterior pharyngeal wall. Okay, I'm in the molecular, things like this. And that's letting the team around them know how how they're getting on if operator one is still going okay tongue tongue okay I, I, that might be the molecular or they go very quiet it indicates to the rest of the team that they're maybe having a bit of a, a, a difficulty so the team leader at that point might coach them through some of the 30 second drills they might say do you need elm they might say do you need to back out or how su suggest to them ways that they can improve their view but hopefully what you're going to hear is uh discussing through the anatomy and then very quickly grade one view bougie please we'll then insert the bougie railroad the tube over the top uh, and look to confirm that tube placement the team then may choose to insert uh, an esophageal temperature probe or, or a gastric tube to help empty the stomach contents. Generally, then once the tube is secure and they're either ventilating the patient or they're attached to the ventilator, the team may then go through a post-fear checklist, which again is a very short checklist to run through, just ensuring that we've done everything. So it might be asking, okay, do we need to do any thoracostomies? What's our blood pressure management plan? What's our induction management plan? And, and once that's complete, we can then look at getting the patient moving. And that comes on to scene momentum, which I'm going to pass over to you, Alex, because I imagine in your role as ops officer, this is where you could really come into to play. And this is, I feel, where the ground crews can really, really help us to improve patient care. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the first thing to to bear in mind is is going back to what you said about situational awareness. Now, the things that we're going to start talking about in a second, the things that we can do once the tube is secure... I think it's really important that what we're doing is not causing any additional distractions because if we're interrupting that situational awareness and we're distracting the team leader or any other members of that direct fear team, then we potentially risk causing problems. But once that tube is in and it's secure, there's plenty of things that we can do without having to be directed to, to, to really speed things up. Now, whether, whether the patient is being conveyed by air or by road, what we want to do is avoid losing the momentum at the scene because it's very easy once that point, everyone starts to relax and then, oh, brilliant, the patient's being ventilated. So, you know, things tend to slow down, but actually sometimes that's, that's really not what we want uh, to happen. But then alternatively, what we don't want is a mad rush to the vehicle, chuck everything in the back and then go. In our role as pre-hospitalists on the road, we can actually be really helpful in this situation. We can start to pack up. The other thing that we can do is we can really help to keep that time pressure on while, while a lot of the bandwidth is being used up in the actual care of the patient. Sometimes it can be quite helpful to have someone putting a bit of pressure on and saying, guys, we, uh, we, need, to, we need to go. Why aren't we moving towards hospital? I'm going to come back to you in five minutes, then I would like you to be moving on. Now, that's probably going to be 
someone in an equivalent position to myself, it's probably going to be quite uh, quite intimidating for you know, say, a new member of staff uh, or, or a more junior member of staff to turn around and, and essentially boss a critical care team around. But for someone like myself or someone who is more confident, if you notice that time is ticking on and actually we don't appear to be going anywhere, I don't think there's anything wrong in saying, "Have we got any problems? Should we be making our way towards the hospital?" Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's a really useful question to ask Alex, and I, and I don't think any critical care team would would take umbrage against somebody asking, "Is there a reason we're still here? Is there a reason we're not moving towards hospital?" And I and I ask that question to my own colleagues a, a lot of the time as well, particularly if I'm I'm doing the team leader role. So uh, yeah, it's a very useful question to ask. Clearly, there may be a reason if it looks like we're struggling and we're heads in trying to make our ventilator work or, or struggling with something, then maybe reserve that question until it looks like we're not. But particularly if it looks like we're, you know, if, if everyone's just got a little bit fatigued. And, and I think that's I think that's not unusual that you kind of take a sigh of, of relief once the tube's in and everything's sorted and you're like, great, okay, the anaesthetic's done. Uh, oh, we've still got to move towards hospital. You know, that that, that prompt and, and that uh, poke up the backside to keep moving towards hospital and keep that foot on the pedal is really useful and really important. One other thing that I was going to talk about, this is this is a little pearl of wisdom, I suppose, that was given to me once by, uh, by a critical care paramedic. And um, we were transporting a patient to hospital and he asked me to let him know when we were roughly 10 minutes away. And the reason for that was my, my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, but my understanding is that many of the drugs that are used in terms of neuromuscular blockade and sedation tend to last up to around 60 minutes once they're administered. So if you're time from induction to the time that you're getting to the hospital is in the region of 50 to 60 minutes, it can be useful to let the critical care team know, give them a shout through the back of the of the ambulance um, that, you know, we're about 10 minutes away from hospital. They then have a chance to, prior to getting to the hospital and having to think about the handover and, and disembarking from the vehicle, they then have a chance to have a look and see, well, actually, do we need to top up the sedation, the neuromuscular blockade? You know, do we need to do anything else prior to getting to the hospital? So that's another really useful thing that someone once asked me to do. And I've, I've always uh, I've always remembered that. Yeah, that's really important. And that kind of reminder, that kind of cognitive aid is is really useful, particularly if we've been busy doing all, lots of other things and giving lots of other medications in the back. So ideally, you you want that patient paralyzed and, and adequately sedated for, well, for the whole journey, but particularly during the handover process, what you really don't want is the patient trying to breathe or, or causing ventilator alarms whilst you're trying to hand the patient over and transition that care. You want it to be nice and smooth. So you want the patient nicely sedated, nicely paralyzed so that you can hand them over to the receiving anesthetics team. We want a hands-off handover in the emergency department. And yeah, absolutely. If, if you're having to uh, intervene in kind of re-paralyze and redo those things and ventilator alarms and stuff it's going to interrupt that flow process and it's going to kind of affect the onward journey of the patient the receiving emergency department and anesthetic teams so um yeah from from the in-hospital perspective and the receiving person um I'd, i'd completely agree with that it'd be it'd be nice if that was a smooth process yeah the only other thing i would add in in, in regards to that uh, that bit of advice there is also bear in mind that sometimes, particularly if they're travelling by air, critical care teams have actually potentially come a long way out of area and they may just not know how far away the hospital are. Um, before- to be honest, if you're like me, you can be in area and still not know how far away from a hospital you are. So uh, yeah, it's always helpful. <laughs> 
<laughs> things things seem different from the air, don't they, Josh? Not 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 the windy roads. You fly in a straight line. You, yeah. So I, I've been in my area of work for three years, and people are like, "How can you still not know how to get from point A to point B?" And I'm like, "Well, because the directions that I'm used to are up, forwards, and down. So you don't really get used to the road networks. The, the directions that you are used to are finding your way from the fridge to the coffee machine, aren't they, Josh?" <laughs> Yeah, up from the chair. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's summarise. This wasn't a podcast aimed at teaching you how to perform a fear, nor were we looking to discuss the varying merits of anaesthetics regimes. The purpose of this podcast was to give you an understanding of why patients might receive a pre-hospital anaesthetic and how you as the road crew can best support the team. FIA is a team game and everyone on that job is part of that team. So just because you're not pushing the drugs or intubating the patient doesn't mean that you have any less of a part to play in helping this run smoothly. Preparing for FIA is what takes the time. So any prep that you're able to do before the arrival of the critical care team is really helpful. Remember my colleague's mnemonic, tubes. Two oxygen bottles, undress the patient, bilateral IV access, ensure 360 degrees access, and suction times too. Also, think about the environment that we're trying to perform the procedure. Ideally, we want something that's well lit, but not in bright sunshine, and protected from the elements, with smooth access and egress for the trolley bed. Loss of momentum post fear is a real risk, so helping the critical care team to keep their foot on the gas once the procedure is complete is really important. Everyone needs to be helping to move this patient towards definitive care when there's no longer any reason for us to be remaining on scene. And finally, we just really want to stress that you are an essential member of the fear team, working to keep the patient safe. Support the critical care team with creating the optimum environment to perform an anaesthetic and help to create a safe sterile cockpit ethos by ensuring speech is limited to the procedure. But that doesn't mean stand by and be quiet. Don't be afraid to speak up if you think you see a problem or a safety issue. As there is every month, there's an article on our website generalbroadcast.org.uk filled with the references that we've used to compile this podcast as well as some of the videos and picture references that we've been referring to if our audio description didn't quite do things justice. If you've got any feedback or comments about the podcast, please do get us through our contact page or send us an email. And as always, it's super helpful if you can spread the word about this podcast. So if you like what we're doing, if you like this episode, give it a share on Twitter, tell your colleagues about it, use it to teach your students. We're going to be taking a short break over the summer to try and enjoy a little bit of the sunshine. So there's no podcast next month, but we will return in August for monthly general broadcast podcasts. Thanks very much. Have a great summer and we'll catch you next time.